Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. We laugh slightly nervously because for many of us death is one of our greatest fears. For some it's the fear of the unknown. We fear what we can't plan for, what we can't control. Others fear death because of the pain uh, from the car accident or the cancer or old bodies slowly wearing out. I guess it's the process of dying that many people fear. And then there are others who fear death because of what's on the other side of death. They fear judgement. They fear meeting God and having to account for how they've lived. Fear of death shows itself in lots of other ways as well. Phobias like claustrophobia, fear of enclosed spaces, or agoraphobia, fear of open or unknown spaces. Both of those can come from a fear of death. As can a fear of heights or bridges or snakes, all of those could have death behind them, I guess. But it's not just bad things, it's a fear of death that drives many people to an obsession with exercise or healthy eating or hypochondria. It's fear of death that often motivates people to use psychics or mediums to contact people who've died. They seek to control or conquer or abolish death. And our fear of death is seen in the way we keep death at arm's length. We hope uh, that if we don't have to see it or think about it, it won't affect us. Uh, Think about the number of figures of speech uh, we use to disguise death. Passed away, passed on, passed over, eternal rest, uh, asleep, deceased, lost her battle, slipped away, gone to a better place and more as well. In fact, a whole industry has grown up from our fear of death. The funeral industry exists so we can keep death at a distance. We pay someone else to make death their problem. But not thinking about death is a dangerous game to play, of course, isn't it? Because the reality is there is no escaping it. You can't stop death any more than you can hold back the tide. And every other society before ours has recognised that and death has been part of life. Perhaps it's the medical and health advances in the last hundred years that have fooled us into thinking that we've beaten death. But we haven't beaten it. We've delayed it, perhaps. And it's left us unprepared to face death. C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, wrote, there are three things we can do about death. Desire it, fear it, or ignore it. The third alternative, which is the one the modern world calls healthy, is surely the most uneasy and precarious of all. Death is painful. There's separation, loss, loneliness. Yes, but it's a reality. It's a part of life. Uh, It's foolish to pretend otherwise. Death affects everyone. Steve Turner has written a poem called Death Live and part of it goes like this. The liberating thing about death is in its fairness to women, its acceptance of blacks, its special consideration for the sick and I like the way that children aren't excluded. Homosexuals are welcomed. Militants aren't banned. 
Con men can't con it, thieves can't nick it, bullies can't scare it, magicians can't trick it. The thing about dead is we're all going to be it. Death is the schoolyard bully who threatens everybody. There's no escaping him, no one can hide. So what can we do in the face of death? How can we prepare for it? How can we overcome our fear of it and the fear of judgement that often goes along with it? Well, one place we can look is Romans chapter 8. Romans mainly addresses the question of sin, how our rebellion from God separates us from him, what God does to bring us back. But along the way it addresses sin and judgement and what Jesus does to defeat them. The chapters leading up to Romans 8 describe God's wrath against mankind's sin. The first uh, three chapters. Uh, Chapter 5 describes how death entered the world through one man's sin and death came to everyone. Uh, 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. 5.14 says death reigned. But not only death, 5.16 describes uh, how judgement and condemnation followed that one sin of Adam. God's just punishment for our sin is eternal separation from him. And the conclusion of all of this, by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, is that without Christ we're wretched, we're hopeless and helpless and the question is posed, who will rescue us from this body of death? And the chapter finishes with the wonderful answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the answer to the problem of sin and death and judgement. And so we come to chapter 8. And chapter 8 explains how Jesus rescues us from the body of death, what he achieves and how all of that addresses our fear our fear of death and judgement. And what it does is give us a number of pictures, images that we can focus on when fear tempts us and drives us to other things. Because it's fear that causes us to think about other images, images that the non-Christians tend to associate with death. And so maybe when fear... uh, strikes you, you can begin to connect death with with blackness, uh, with uncertainty and despair and failure and hopelessness. Or sometimes we're tempted to connect, uh, you see this at non-Christian funerals, don't you, these pictures of false hope in the face of death, balloons and doves and Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Uh, we see non-Christians with, who, who bring to death, if it's not hopelessness, these images of purpose and usefulness. Uh, and you see people starting charities because they've been affected by death in one way or another. And now those things are wonderful. And the work they can do can genuinely influence future lives. But they can't bring back the person that's been lost And so instead of those hopeless pictures to do with death, uh, let's look at the pictures we get here in Romans 8 and let them lead you from fear to faith. 
Uh, The first fear that's answered is our fear of judgement in verse 1. Therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law condemns us as guilty because we're not able to keep it. But it's possible to be set free from that, uh, to be declared innocent. And there's the first picture, a not guilty verdict delivered. And what that means is we don't need to fear judgement. We don't need to fear condemnation. It's a verdict that's available to a certain group of people only. Can you see who they are there in verse 1? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the idea of being joined to Jesus is one that's been explained a little in the previous chapters. We get little hints of it. Uh, Like chapter 6 verse 3. When we trusted Jesus, God connected us to him. And uh, 6.3 describes it as being baptised into Christ Jesus. God makes us one with Jesus and and when he does he sees us and Jesus as one and so our assets are joined. His righteousness becomes mine. My sin becomes his. Uh, 5.19 puts it like this. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. The first man is talking about Adam. Adam passed his sinful nature onto us. Uh, We are joined to him like branches on a uh, trunk of a tree. Uh, We're connected to Adam, so we take Adam's sin. But when God joins us to Jesus, we take Jesus' righteous obedience. Uh, His credit becomes mine, my debt becomes his. Uh, It's like when Karen and I got married. Uh, She'd worked for a few years before, she'd saved 25,000. But I'd only been teaching for a year and I pretty much had nothing in the bank. But when we were joined together in marriage, my poverty became hers. Her riches became mine. Now, from my point of view, that was a great deal. But when we're united to Jesus, it's the same. His innocence becomes ours. Our guilt becomes his. And it's that guilt, it's our guilt that he is punished for. Our death becomes his and his life becomes ours. Back over in chapter 8, it goes on to describe how we're set free from that condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Jesus condemns not us but our sin and replaces it instead with righteousness, with his righteousness. He paid the price for it. He bore the punishment for it. And so we escape. We're declared innocent. And the fear of judgement is gone. 
We don't need to fear because our fate no longer depends on our performance. Instead of fear, we're confident because we're not depending on our, our, our own performance but on the perfect performance of Jesus. That makes a real difference to life, doesn't it? Instead of fear, we replace it with freedom and confident joy. Ramadan, starting soon, the Muslim, he obeys God out of duty or fear or or compulsion or or maybe even a little selfishness because as he follows the pillars of Islam, he earns a right standing before Allah. It's not much different, uh, the motivation's not much different for the Mormon or the Jew or any religion really who works through a to-do list to avoid judgment But there's no fear of judgement for us and so we've actually been set free in Christ to obey out of freedom, to obey out of gratitude and love, to respond with obedience rather than being driven and compelled out of fear. You see, being set free from the fear of judgement doesn't just change how you think about death, it changes life. It changes everything. Another way of describing being joined to Jesus is that his spirit, his Holy Spirit, lives in us. And that means our lives are being influenced by the spirit. Verse 4 talks about living according to the spirit. And because Jesus lives in us, we have a new nature. We actually have his nature. Since we're joined to him, we begin to want to please him and we have a new power to actually be able to do that, to to actually please God. Verses 4 to 9 describe how the Christian lives according to the Spirit, how the Christian is actually able to keep the righteous requirements of the law. And then we come to verses 10 and 11. The Spirit of the risen Jesus living in us affects our life But look in verses 10 how he affects our our coming death. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Notice carefully what it's saying. Our bodies are headed for death, but if we have the Spirit of God in us, the powerful Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, so we, we have this internal power source that will raise our bodies from the dead. Many of you know I like bike riding. Uh, there's a new type of bike that's getting popular. It's called an e-bike <coughs> or an electric bike. It's, it's a normal looking bike but it's got a built-in battery and electric motor. It helps you up hills. I was riding up a hill the other day at North Sydney and another cyclist rode past me. It's not that unusual, uh, except this one was old and wearing a suit. Now, he stopped at the lights at the top of the hill and when I eventually caught up with him, I realised that ah, he's riding an e-bike with an extra energy source. Cheat, I thought to myself. As the lights turned green and he cycled off into the distance ahead of me. 
But that's what it's like to be a Christian compared to everybody else. We have an inbuilt power source of God's spirit, the, the, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. He will give life to your mortal bodies. Well, that's one way God's spirit gives us confidence in the face of death. But there's another as well. Uh, Look down to verse 13. God's spirit confirms that we're God's children. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, then we're heirs. Follow the logic. God fills you with his spirit and by the power of the spirit you begin to live according to the spirit. Verse 13. That lifestyle shows you that you're a genuine son of God. The Spirit testifies through our obedience and living by the Spirit that we are God's children. And once you know that you're God's child, you don't need to fear him. You don't need to fear him now. You don't need to fear him when death and judgment are facing us. And instead you can enjoy the relationship of a father and a son. It's by the Spirit that you're confident to call him Abba or Daddy. There's a famous photo there of John F. Kennedy Jr., son of the President, John F. Kennedy. shows him playing beneath the President's desk, which has this little secret door that opens. Uh, There he is, the most powerful man in the world, but this little boy has the confidence to sit beneath his feet and play with no fear because he gets to call him Dad. That's the picture of us. That's the confidence we have. God's spirit, the spirit of sonship, confirms that we are his children. He's our father. There's no need to fear his judgement. Well, there's one final picture in this section to help us face the fear of death. From verse 18 we get a description of our future glory. I consider that our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. We sometimes think creation is going to be wonderful and we'll be along for the ride, but this is saying we're going to be transformed into something wonderful and creation comes along for the ride. What we are now doesn't measure up to God's plan for us then. At the moment everything's broken. I feel it. I know a lot of you feel like the world is broken, your bodies are broken. Death infects everything. Creation groans, says verse 22. Verse 21, it's waiting to be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. It's their freedom. Creation wants to tag along for the ride. You see, God has a plan to renew everything. And that's because he's going to gloriously renew us, his children, 
And so he needs to make a glorious new creation for us to live in. That's why creation can't wait for us to be set free because it gets an upgrade as well. And because we have God already living in us, we have a deposit of that new freedom already. We have an inbuilt adoption certificate tattooed to us. We have a window into eternity stamped on us. And we can begin to taste it and experience it now. And so we confidently and patiently hope for it even though we experience the death and loss that comes with being part of this world. We wait eagerly, verse 23, for the redemption of our bodies. We hope patiently. Rather than facing death and judgement with fear and despair or maybe ignoring it and pretending it won't happen the way the world does, we can face it with confidence because of the work of Jesus. If you are a Christian then you are in him and his credit is yours. And we have his spirit in us, empowering life and obedience, affirming that we belong to God, that we are his children, guaranteeing our glorious inheritance. So fill your mind with those pictures and have confidence rather than fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the confidence to go through life knowing that our future, our death, our judgement, our condemnation have been dealt with because we belong to Jesus. We are in him. Lord, for any here this morning who don't know that, we pray that you would help them to see Jesus. Give them the eyes of faith to trust him, that they too might be found in him, that their guilt would be washed away, that their fear would be squashed and that they too might begin to live out the hope and the confidence of the glorious freedom that you've won for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.